1: From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and you're listening to the Nerdat Book Club. It's just like normal book club, except you don't have to leave your house, which has become even more of a thing than it was, what, like even a month ago, right? I am here with Heather Haverleski, who writes the Ask Polly advice column for New York Magazine. Her memoir is also literally called Disaster Preparedness. Hey, Heather. Hi, Greta. So, how are your preparations? I'm
2: so prepared. I have not been that prepared. I've been, I was a little bit prepared. I was prepared well, You
1: do have to feel dread. You have a lot of Cheez-Its, I hear, right?
2: I have a great surfeit of Cheez-Its, yes, a surplus. <laughs> and I also have some <laughs> soups, canned soups, and a great deal of ramen. Uh-huh. I talked to a friend of mine who had – her brother-in-law literally had a pallet of ramen in mid-March. Whoa. A pallet. Do you know how much that is? That's like three by three square foot. Yeah. Tall. Like as That's big as insane. a as big as a human of ramen. Wow. I think he's probably a little bit tired of ramen now, but still it's impressive.
1: Okay. <laughs> So um, we might continue to talk about snacks, but mostly we are here to talk about The Glass Hotel. It's me and Heather this time, but guess what? We're also going to hear from a whole bunch of you.
0: I just finished reading The Glass Hotel, and it is what a story. The thing that's so interesting to me about this book right now, and especially because of the pandemic we're in, is that in the book, as events are unfolding, we get this really interesting glimpse into how they'll be remembered and narrated later. I really enjoyed reading this book, and I'm glad you see you made it this month's choice because I wouldn't have picked it up otherwise. I can't seem to put it down, but yet I, just, I'm, I feel as though I'm going to be completely surprised by the ending.
1: Yes, we got a lot of really great listener voicemails that I can't wait to listen to. And you're probably going to hear from uh, the construction equipment in the front of my building because they're doing some utility work right out there. And it's happening, you know, this is this is what happens when you're working from home, I guess.
2: Hey there, hot stuff.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I don't know about was that. Was that one of the
2: workers? Wow, that was really creepy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How horrible, catcalling even during a global pandemic. <laughs> okay so this month we are talking about the glass hotel that's the new book by emily st john mandel heather and i have both read it which means we're gonna be talking about spoilers so i would recommend that you wait to listen to this until you have read the book unless you're like oh my god i love spoilers i dip my Cheez it's in them every day (laughs) in which case like go for it we're here let's make it happen (laughs) So before we dive into the Glass Hotel, I do think we need to just like spend a second to address uh, Station Eleven, because that is another book that Emily St. John Mandel wrote, I think about six years ago. It just happens to be about like a global pandemic that sweeps the world and kills like 99% of the population. So like every review I've seen of this book starts with talking about Station 11 and just like how oddly sort of like of the time that book is. Heather, you haven't read it, right?
2: Nope. I almost tried to squeeze it in um, before I read this one, which is what a good Mm -hmm. book critic would do. Um, But apparently I'm not any longer a good book critic. (laughs) because I just finished this one this morning well
1: I mean you did ask me if I thought you should read station 11 and I was like I don't know I kind of feel like now is not a good time to read you know like I read it when it came out I loved it very much I vaguely remember a couple of things about it that kind of stick with me but beyond that like I I don't know I am not one of those people who's like let's read all the pandemic stuff now like I, I have enough with real life you know
2: yeah. I kinda like to double down on disaster myself. Yeah. So I was a little bit like, right on, you know, bring 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 more darkness into my life. Let me panic more. Yes. Enhance the enhance the experience with more of the same. Oh goodness. Okay, well obviously
1: there's a lot we could have discussed about Station Eleven, but We're going to stick with Glass Hotel today, which I think is slightly more escapist somehow than Station Eleven is, but it still is filled with dread. So it's still it's still resonant. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this is normally where we would talk about plot in like broad brushstrokes just to remind people what happened when. But that's going to be super tricky for this one because there are so many different threads and timelines and time jumping and characters But generally, I think what we can say to set up this conversation is that uh, the plot is very closely related to the Bernie Madoff story. It's about a Ponzi scheme in 2008. A pivotal scene happens at a remote high-end hotel called the Hotel Cayette, which is on an island near Vancouver, also known as the Glass Hotel. Um, The scene is that takes place there is someone etches this really horrible message on the glass in the front of the hotel where everyone in the lobby can see it. And the, the thing that's etched is the phrase, why don't you swallow broken glass? And everyone who sees it is super disturbed by it. But as readers, you don't really have a sense of like why it's that. I mean, it's an unpleasant phrase, but you don't really know like why it's so upsetting to everyone. And a couple of the people who see it, one is Vincent, who's kind of our main character and she's a bartender at the hotel at the time. And that night is actually the night that she decides she's going to become the like essentially trophy wife to the guy who's the Ponzi scheme guy. Um, Another character we see in that moment at the hotel is Paul, who's Vincent's half brother. And he also works at the hotel And um, I think that's like the most important piece, maybe. Um, But some other background information about Vincent is that she is a lady, even though her name is Vincent. She's named after Edna St. Vincent Millay. She grew up on an island near where the hotel is. And yeah, as I mentioned, she's a bartender at the hotel before she becomes the Ponzi Scheme Guy's fake wife. From there, there's a number of other characters who are all either connected to the Ponzi Scheme Guy, Jonathan, or to Vincent. Heather, can I put you on the spot and ask you to describe what a Ponzi scheme is for people who like vaguely know but don't?
2: It's a little bit like a pyramid scheme, Mm -hmm. right? You're told you're investing your money
1: Mm -hmm. in something that's like performing very well.
2: So you're basically tricking people, a lot of people underneath you into adding money so you eventually get paid. Mm hmm. Um, so this Ponzi scheme that Madoff had going was sort of like, you kind of almost had to be in denial in order to believe that anyone, like no one had ever had gains like this in the history of investing, essentially. Right.
1: And there's kind of a thread of that in the book, too, right? Like someone who is invited to invest. I forget her name. Do you remember? You probably Ella do. Ella
2: Kapersky that one? Ella,
1: yeah. yeah. And she... She looks into it and is just like, this is impossible. And she Mm -hmm. even tries to report it to the SEC and they don't they don't bite.
2: Yeah, which happened with Madoff. There were a few outspoken people who were saying, "Um, hello, this guy's obviously a criminal.
1: Before we unpack it too much more, I think we should listen to a voicemail from Liz in Minnesota because she hasn't actually finished it. She's only two thirds of the way in. But I, I feel like what she says here is is I at least thought it was super relatable. I'm curious if you think so, too.
0: I am really enjoying it, but I currently feel as though I know that it has to do with Vincent and Jonathan and Paul and these interweaving storylines of the people affected by the Ponzi scheme. However, I'm not quite sure where this book is going. I am totally here for it. It is compulsively readable. I can't seem to put it down, but yet I just, I'm, I feel as though I'm going to be completely surprised by the ending and I'm loving it. Thanks for picking this one as book club. Happy reading.
1: I just think that's so funny because I don't know. I feel like I can't remember the last time I read a book like this where I could easily be two-thirds of the way in and still be like, but what is happening?
2: <laughs> I don't know. Once the Bernie Madoff thing came out, I was like, Ugh.
1: Oh, really? People,
2: yeah, I didn't like it. I was like, all these people are going to be tied. Ty- <laughs> Greta, this is the last time I'll ever appear on your <laughs> show. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why do we have this skeptic uh <laughs> with us here? What is the point of this um, but I, yeah I just thought like okay, so every all of these characters are wrapped up in the same thing. yeah,
1: I don't know I mean it's such a strange
2: crime. I'm interested in what happens to Vincent I'm interested in what happens to Paul and obviously they're some of the main characters
1: so you weren't complete you didn't hate the whole thing
2: no I liked I kind of liked. I mean, do you want to go through the rest of the plot? Well, more? what I what
1: I want to do first, actually, is talk a little bit more about the structure because, I mean, like this book has what at least half a dozen seemingly separate threads. It jumps around from character to character, from like it jumps decades. It jumps from different places to other places, and I almost feel like, in retrospect, it almost moves backwards in yeah. time. Yeah, which I found disorienting and fascinating. I mean, I've talked to you before like when we read the Testaments, I talked to you about how I don't like reading the synopsis on the back of the book usually. Yeah. because I feel like it gives too much away. Yeah. But this is one and I I read this when I was on vacation about a month ago, which is also very surreal to think about now. Um, but vacation. like it's that one where you. <laughs> I know, I was on a plane. It was so weird. Um, but like This is one where I felt like I would finish a chapter and like keep turning it, turning the book over to read the synopsis again and be like, wait, what, what's like, how do these things, what's happening? Yeah. And I was curious, like, I think in the end it really does work. And like, I really loved how it all came together. What did you think of the? Like, what was your experience with the structure?
2: I liked how it wrapped up a lot. I liked the last uh, 40 pages.
1: How confused were you about all of it, like the extent to which it jumps around?
2: Um, slightly. Right in the middle, when we went to Olivia, the artist, she was the artist who met um, Jonathan Alkaitis's older brother, brother, who was an artist who was a, a, a junkie and died of an o- overdose. Um, but this artist friend, she, she was interesting, but she, you know, we went all the way back to her, um, I think to kind of when she was younger, there was a there was a kind of muddled part before the wheels come off the Ponzi scheme where it was just like, I don't, you know, I mean, I really did like um, Mirella, Mirella. Yes. The best friend. um, Yes.
1: Vincent's friend who she meets at a super fancy party and who it seems like is similar to Vincent in that they both grew up in. They both had like impoverished backgrounds and have found themselves in this totally new as they call it a country which is the moneyed
2: yeah I liked that a lot I mean I felt like that that was kind of the escapist center of the whole thing where I mean the themes of this sh- of the book are definitely how do you how do you um escape from sort of the doomed the doomed path that's In front of you, and take Mm -hmm. another path, and how can you just escape your life, sort of, or escape the kind of mundane, limited life that's in front of you? And there was kind of a time where you know you could kind of feel the emptiness of Vincent's choices that she had agreed to sort of follow this loaded man around the world, Um, Mm -hmm. which I think is something that when you're young you kind of try on for size, like. I don't really have to get a job. Like, I, I'm pretty hot, and I <laughs> think if I played my cards right, uh, I don't know. I could probably never have a job. Um, just there was a brief period where I really didn't want a job when I was in my 20s, where I considered that. But I think that that <laughs> I like the way that that's portrayed. I like Morella. I like the I like their alienation from everything around them. Uh, Morella mm-hmm. and Vincent, and then when sh- the the scene where Morella reappears after her boyfriend or husband has died because he's invested in, in Vincent's husband's Ponzi scheme. And she doesn't, she just pretends she doesn't know Vincent at all for the entire time that like she walks into this bar where Vincent's working and just completely just acts like she's invisible or she's just a waitress that happens or a bartender that happens to work there. Um, I yeah, think do, you think really she, do you think she pretends
1: to ignore her yeah. or or pretends to not recognize her? That's interesting because I read it as like she was still part of that world of money. And so just like like literally couldn't see Vincent.
2: Oh, I thought she was I thought she was enacting just being the as cruel as possible. Just, yeah, you don't you don't exist to me anymore because she says Morella. She says her name.
1: I know, right? Yeah, that's <sighs> and true. She,
2: and she just ble- bleeds over it. She doesn't acknowledge a thing that she says. It's unna- it's just a, b- a beautiful, unnatural ghosting in real time, you know?
1: Ghosting, that's so interesting. I hadn't really thought about it in that framing. But one thing that, like, I took away after reading this book is that it is a ghost story, Yeah. right? You mm-hmm. know, so much of what happens is just about how haunted we are by the choices we do or don't make at any given time
2: yeah and a lot of them are moral choices too I mean it's a there's a lot of there's this undercurrent of how ethical are your choices and do you really consider the um the fallout from those choices like the first the first scene with Paul um, yes where he slips some drugs to a few yeah, friends. he
1: so this is Vincent's half brother and this is kind of where it starts. Like I thought it was going to be a book about Paul, really. Yeah, me too. And and yeah, it's like him, he's in college. He has gotten over he's like sober from a heroin addiction, right?
2: Yeah.
1: And he decides to do some ecstasy and he gives some pills to like a member of this band who he has a crush on, like the lead singer of the band essentially. And the dude dies.
2: Yeah, he gives it to the girl he likes, and the girl gives it to... Right, there you go. Gives it to the guy, this guy in the band, Her band and the member. guy dies on the dance floor uh, like half an hour later. And he just skips down he... in order to escape it. I mean, there's a lot of escaping from your fate and not taking... You know, the people who end up the least happy are the ones who keep running away from reality.
1: That's such a beautiful insight. I love that. Because you're right. The ones... And even... And it's not like bad things don't happen to other characters, but they the ones who, like, actually face it are the ones who are the least miserable in the end.
2: Yeah, the, the, I mean, you could argue that all of the characters end up miserable, actually, because <laughs> there's no one who's, like, happy at the end. But it struck me that um, Enrico, who's, who who gets on a plane to Mexico the second that the shit hits the fan, Yeah, so he's one of the guys
1: who works at the Ponzi scheme who like knew what they were doing, but hadn't said anything about it for a long time. And, and there's like this period of time where everybody knows that like, it's about to go very, very bad. And they're all just kind of waiting for it. And I loved those scenes. Yeah. But Enrico is one of those characters, and he, he's the one who jets to Mexico, right? He's like, yeah. I don't have to live here. I'm going to just hide out for the rest of my life.
2: And at first, everyone envies him, but then they check back in with him, and he's hes still waiting for the axe to fall, essentially, because he's waiting for, like, a car to pull up and arrest him, whereas everyone else has done their time. Because the people who worked for Jonathan Al-Qaeda, most of them were, ser- you know, one of them served, like, 10 years, I think, or eight years. Mm-hmm. But Jonathan Al-Qaeda himself gets like 170 years. But I mean, as the as the architect of the whole scheme, obviously, he's kind of on the run from reality. Um, And, uh, you know, he has a fake wife. He tells everyone he's married to Vincent, but he isn't.
1: But um, even when he there's even a a really
2: person, you know, there's a
1: beautiful line. Right. When he when he's in jail. And I think it might even be about like how he feels about his insanely long sentence. You know, I mean, essentially, he's been sentenced to die in jail. Um, and, and the line is something like there's an incredible relief when you wake up and remember that the worst has already happened, Mm -hmm. which I think even that kind of speaks to that idea of like, once you actually confront whatever the horrible thing is like, and it even, you know, it reminds me too of, um, the moment. So, so Paul, we mentioned Paul, he's the one, he drops out of college when he accidentally kills this guy by giving him ecstasy. He ends up stealing these tapes from his half sister Vincent and kind of stealing the music of this band. He really liked and like ends up having a very successful career, like playing these films that he didn't make and playing this music that he kind of imitates. And he keeps waiting for his half sister Vincent who actually recorded these videos to show up and be like, what the fuck dude, why did you steal my stuff? And he's so haunted by that potential conversation that like it's worse than if that conversation had really happened.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And I just find like that as a theme throughout the book, I just thought was so powerful and and haunting and fascinating.
2: Yeah. The idea that you could imagine that your imagination will torment you more than um, reality. I mean, I think that it's a kind of a timely theme actually mm-hmm. um, <laughs> because there's something about trying to process where we are right now, um, a lot of the processing of it... I mean, there's the undeniable fact of how sort of dark things are and how our lives are very um, conscripted and there are all these boundaries around our movement. Um, But there's also, in some ways, the dread and the panic around the pandemic, at least for the moment, feel bigger than the, the pandemic itself, at least you know, as you're kind of waiting for it to spread across the country. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah.
2: And it's interesting to, I mean, it's interesting to have this parable about um, people who are living, who, who appear to be living like in an escapist free way, but they're essentially on the run all the time from what's inside Mm -hmm. their heads. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's interesting when we learn about Suzanne, the ex-wife too, that he actually had a really good relationship with her. Even though she's just as corrupt as he is, it's I I really liked that part too.
1: Yes, you're talking about Jonathan, the Ponzi scheme guy. So he essentially he kind of refuses to marry Vincent because he was already married to a real wife, and Mm -hmm. she was so wonderful. And he
2: also told her the truth about everything, unlike Mm -hmm. Vincent, who he lies Mm -hmm. to from the beginning.
1: And she died. Did she have breast cancer? She died of some
2: kind of cancer. Some kind of cancer. I don't know. She was sick for a
1: while. But yeah, there were a couple of moments that make you realize that she is actually, like she's in on it and she's just as morally compromised as Jonathan is. Yeah.
2: And it's also interesting that he never, Jonathan never sees the words written on the window where when Elle Kapersky, we find out that she was behind the message on Mm -hmm. the window at the hotel Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the book. It is is a hard book to talk about, isn't it? It's like, what are you talking about (laughs) now? (laughs) Um, there's a lot of flashing <laughs> forward and flashing back. and
1: um. Yeah, it's super, it's super complicated, but I think it was, I don't know, I mean, yeah, as I was reading it, especially on vacation, I was like, is this really like a good, I was hoping it would be like a fun, interesting, like vacation romp, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was definitely interesting, but it wasn't like, and I think it was rewarding to like, it's one of those books that. I think I might actually enjoy kind of like unpacking all the layers once I'm done. And it's sort of like in my craw more than the actual process of, of unpacking it all, like and trying of reading it, of getting through it and like piecing it all together.
2: It's interesting to think about the stealing as a a central, like theft as a central, Mm -hmm. the central theme of the book. The one thing that I would say that I mean, if I were writing a review of this book, I'd probably start here. I mean, which is a little bit nasty, but I don't love discovering that a book is ripped from the headlines halfway through, mm-hmm. and they're old headlines, and it's a story that you may know very, very well. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, I felt like that was a theft, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. and because that you know when we go into the details of what's happening in that office or uh, uh, jonathan al office i just expected that twist to be more um fascinating and interesting and just more unexpected it was kind of like once it was clear that he was running a ponzi scheme it was sort of like i don't need these 30 pages
1: oh that's so funny so what you're talking about is it's the beginning of part three and i think I think Emily even calls it, like, the office chorus. Oh. Oh, right, because we. There's a lot of Because it's we. It's all in this sort of, like, vague second person. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's so funny because that's when I started really being compelled by this book, actually. Like, your interest dropped when mine peaked, I think. Which maybe makes us the perfect buddies (laughs) to be doing a book club, Heather. I should Um, just
2: go about my day saying... I'm really suddenly dissatisfied with this day. I I should call (laughs) Greta. I bet she's really happy right now. Yeah, they're just inverse timelines all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because it was like, I don't know. I mean, those 30 pages were the first time where you actually had just like, and I think a lot of it is just that I love plot. And that's when it actually became linear And like, there were scenes and it like started in the morning time and ended at nighttime. And then there was another day that started in the morning time. And like, things progressed in a way that I just found much easier to read, you know,
2: you know, what the problem with for me was just that it was a familiar thing, like, the hammer's gonna fall on this, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, where, you know, the hammer's gonna fall around us. And when are the cops gonna show up? And I I felt like, on the boat, right? When, when Vincent goes and joins this shipping boat um, mm-hmm. and then kind of falls in love with this random guy on the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked that part. I wanted to know more about that. That was yeah. more of a foreign world to me. Yes. You know? I felt like I didn't know any character that well. Did you feel like you knew these characters well? I feel like... I mean, who's Jonathan al exactly? He's just some smooth guy. Like, could you describe yeah. this man?
1: Not really, but I also like, I feel like he's sort of stereotypical enough that I kind of can picture him, you know? <laughs>
2: okay, like, but is that a like, good character or is that, does that mean he's a, he's like a basically a trope?
1: Well, yeah, I think, I think a lot of the characters are basically tropes, but I think that makes some of the other characters more compelling, maybe. Like I thought Vincent was a really interesting character.
2: She was, I don't know that I could pin her down as a person though. Like even Olivia says, she doesn't seem that it, Olivia, I liked it when Olivia actually met Vincent and we learned that Olivia thinks Vincent's kind of a lightweight. Um, Yeah. And yeah, she's underestimating her a little bit, but it's hard not to kind of side with her and say like, yeah, who is Vincent exactly? Um, Yeah. yeah, She's sort of a, a kind of like a faceless opportunist. I like her, the mood of how she's written. I mean, I think she's written with soul, even though if you can't put a finger on exactly what kind of person she is. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: she is written with soul. That's a good way of putting it. I mean, I just think about even one of the early scenes where you learn uh, why Vincent is named Vincent, and it's for Edna St. Vincent Millay. And, and what is that line? I have it written down here somewhere. It's the... Um, Oh, here it is. The point is she raised herself into a new life by sheer force of will.
2: Yeah, I liked that too.
1: Which I think you know, is it says so much about how like what Vincent thinks of her mother's life but then how Vincent also ends up living her own life.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and her mother is this really great inspiring character that you want to know more about too. Like you could kind of see why when her mother died and disappeared, like why the light went out for Vincent. Um, It's like she had this unfair advantage in her life because her mother had kind of swept in and stolen Paul's dad away from his mom and ruined their lives. I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting to sort of see it. I mean, there's kind of a faintly moralistic feeling to the whole tale, if you think about it, because people end up kind of paying for all of their thefts, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I do think that the one character that's supposed to be sort of like completely devoted to honesty and living a very kind of like real life is Walter, the, uh, the oh, hotel right. manager.
1: You know, that reminds me of something Scott said in his voicemail. Let's listen to it.
2: Hi, Nerdette. This is Scott in
0: Grand Rapids, Michigan. I really enjoyed reading this book, and I'm glad you you made it this month's choice because I wouldn't have picked it up otherwise. The scheme as a whole is, is terrifying to those of us who are in retirement. Uh, but at the same time, it's interesting to th- compare how it ha- affects different investors. Walter, for instance, ends up happy as a clam in a, in a hotel by himself in northern Vancouver. And Olivia, though it makes her desperately unhappy, also probably got more out of the scheme than she put into it as a result of getting in at the right part of the pyramid. Thanks. It was fun.
1: Yeah. He honestly is like the least impacted in some ways by being a victim of this Ponzi scheme, or at least he like figures out a way to make it work for himself.
2: It was, oh yeah, that's right. Cause he is an investor, isn't he?
1: Yeah. He like begs to be a part of it. And he, you know, he scrapes together every last, you know, he's not a super wealthy guy by any, but he like dumps his savings into this thing and and yeah, he ends up being the one who he like talks the new owners of the hotel into just letting him live in this vacant hotel out in the middle of nowhere.
2: Yeah, that and he seems very happy. That was pretty realistic. <laughs> 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 but I mean, I like it. I, lo- I love the hotel. It's oh, me, too. It sounds yeah, I great, mean, doesn't it? It's like you just I'm like, I want to live there. Well, and just the
1: whole, like, I thought there were a couple of really beautiful lines about wilderness and the Mm -hmm. idea of it, you know? And, like, very few people who go to the wilderness actually want to experience the wilderness. Yeah. Says one of the characters. And even, like, I don't know, having grown up in Alaska, I feel like I can relate to that very much, where it's, like, it's nice to see it out your window, but, like, that doesn't mean I want to actually endure it all
2: the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was the the idea that you could see it through the glass and, yes. and not have to live in it. That's right. part, sort of the appeal of this crazy luxury hotel in the middle of nowhere. But it's some, in some ways it's sort of like a, the book is kind of like this commentary on, you know, you think that you're seeking a soulful existence, but you're actually just completely living in a like a, in a corrupt way, looking through the glass at something that you'll never own because you can't face reality. Um, <laughs> I always like a big theme. Sorry. You're amazing.
1: No, that's perfect. It's exquisite. Okay. I think we should do a break here. But when we come back, let's listen to another voicemail.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
1: Okay, let's listen to a voicemail from Simone.
0: Hi, Nerdette. This is Simone's daughter, and she's about to tell you about a book that she really likes.
1: Hi, this is Simone. That was my
0: daughter. Thank you for introducing me to this book. I'm super into it. And I'm only on chapter three, and I don't know if I'll finish it by the time you do the podcast, so I'm sorry. But the thing that's so interesting to me about this book right now, and especially because of the pandemic we're in, is that in the book, as events are unfolding, we get this really interesting glimpse into how they'll be remembered and narrated later, or how they'll ricochet into a future event like... um, in later years, Walter was interviewed three or four times about Jonathan Alkaitis. Okay, thanks, Nerdette. You're giving me a lot of hope right now.
1: Isn't that an interesting way of of looking at it? Because I think she's totally right. Like, even the whole Ponzi scheme thing—you don't find out, as you mentioned, like what it actually is until much later. But you know, I'm pretty sure it's the first moment you hear about Jonathan Alkaitis, you know, he ends up in jail for doing something bad.
2: Yeah. Well, it's a strangely it's a strangely uh, structured reveal Mm -hmm. it it creates this tension where you're like you know you know this guy's tricking everyone around him somehow um but and yet he's this really low-key person who isn't um you know in some ways you kind of keep looking for an obvious criminal because the idea of criminal intent is and and really high stakes disaster is sort of infused in everything that happens in the first few chapters of the book Mm
1: -hmm. but
2: um but it's almost like part of the, um, the theme of the book is that you don't really need to be have criminal intent or be the most outwardly corrupt person um, in order to actually do things that have a lot of negative effects on the people around you or you know in mm-hmm. order to ruin lives you know you can sort of accidentally bumble along and just um, protect yourself and ruin a lot of lives along the way and in mm-hmm. fact if you look at if you set out to write a book about the people who were affected by Bernie Madoff, I mean, th- this is not a bad, when you look at it from that kind of like macro perspective, it's not a bad effort from that perspective because you d- at first you're like, what, what are all these characters? It would be very hard to do a linear book about Bernie Madoff. Where you're like, we're just going to follow this nice old couple until, oh, they've lost all their money. You know, it would be, <laughs> the way that she, that she weaves the characters into the story actually works. Like I did care about Leon by the time we got back to him because he'd been Mm -hmm. introduced earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, And he had had this nice conversation with Jonathan about shipping and, you know, this polite, interesting conversation that where they were both kind of impressed with each other. I mean, you sort of understood how people were, were pulled in by him and charmed by him.
1: Well, and one thing we haven't mentioned that is probably should be mentioned is the fact that he owned the hotel.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah. which
1: again, you know, speaking of like this amazing, luxurious place, that's like in the middle of it all, but just disconnected enough. And here's this guy who's making it happen for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, that has kind of a gravitational pull of its own, too, right?
2: Yeah, it says something about that towards the end, of the book is it, um they talk about it's, it was pretty easy to have, um, to have credibility in that setting. Like, Oh, by the way, I own this place. You know, you couldn't Mm -hmm. just walk into any Marriott or Hilton or whatever and just start talking to someone about your investment firm, you know, it adds a curiosity and like a credibility to the conversation. Yeah.
1: It kind of reminds me what you're saying of what Boris Fishman said when he reviewed it for the New York times which is in the glass hotel as in station 11 Mandel's interest seems to lie more in pointing out the ways random lives intersect rather than deriving anything enlightening from the fact that they do to her credit. These encounters don't feel contrived and certainly never for plot reasons, simply from time to time, her camera lifts and shows us another place in time involving one or more of the same people who among us hasn't wished to look through the same viewfinder.
2: That's nicely put. I mean, You do do definitely get a contrast between the different ways of viewing the world from these characters. You have a Mm -hmm. wide range of perspectives. Was the overall, um, would you characterize that review as positive? I would say
1: it was mostly positive, yes. Mm -hmm. Like, that was probably the most, and that's the closing paragraph. Oh, uh That was probably the most, um, like, critical. But, I mean, so much of that review was actually about Station Eleven and the resonance of that book now. Which is it? It seems kind of inescapable from the point of view of people who are trying to put her work into context.
2: Well, you know, I thought when I read this most most of the time I was reading this, I thought I really wish I'd read Station Eleven because, and I'm going to read it next because the writing of this feels like it's in line with. um, I mean, you know, it's interesting because yeah, it it feels like it's in line with a major catastrophe, right? I mean, the way that Mm -hmm. she writes feels Mm right. It feels. It feels very appropriate to a bit of really catastrophic subject matter. And it's interesting because I thought that her, you know, at the darkest parts of this novel, I really loved her writing. I loved the, la- the last few pages. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very good at like poignant sadness, right? So mm-hmm. it's interesting because I feel like part of what didn't work for me about this book was, um once it once it was just like, oh, it's made off, it's sort of like, ugh, that's pretty low stakes compared to where we are right now, you know? Like I think one of the reasons that people are watching Contagion and and you know, I watched um Ready Player One last night. It's like oh, dystopic yeah. you know, extremely sad apocalyptic stuff at least feels like that, you know, like it matches the the moment a little bit, you know. This just felt like foreboding but the but but kind of like in a way that didn't necessarily pay off enough for me. Whereas mm-hmm. I, you know,
1: the stakes should have been higher.
2: Yeah. Kind of. I mean, because I think that the stakes for me, the stakes didn't feel high enough because the characters weren't, um, I didn't care about them enough. Hmm. There were so many characters to service here too.
1: There were a lot of characters to service. I still mm. think we had more texture to these characters than the characters in the Testament. Oh,
2: well for sure. I mean, <laughs> Testaments. This, this is a good book we read. <laughs> Testaments <laughs> is not a good
1: book. Okay, let's listen to a voicemail from another person named Heather. Uh-oh. Hi, <laughs> Nurda. This is Heather from Chicago, Illinois. And I just finished reading The Glass Hotel.
0: And it is what a story. But I also was thinking, and maybe you guys can talk about this, that I didn't know whether to feel bad like to have sympathy for jonathan towards the end especially when he
1: started to see the ghosts of all the people he had harmed or if i just like straight up hated him because of all the people that he had harmed um but it was a really great book and also i have been to vancouver island and it is just as beautiful as they say and i can imagine that the hotel was just an incredible place to stay Okay, happy reading. So what do you think? Do you hate him or do you feel bad for him?
2: I like books where I hate someone and feel bad for them at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the Pat Conroy always writes uh characters like that. The Lords of Discipline, The Great Santini. Um, yeah, I like I like like a like a um patriarchal character who's extremely flawed and it's almost like I wanted to see more Tony Soprano in this guy. Like I was I wanted just going to see gonna say Tony Soprano. Bit, yeah. You know? um, yeah. Like he's, it's not completely clear that he doesn't love Vincent that much until you learn more about Suzanne, his ex wife or right. rather his, his former, his wife who died. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's a, uh, I, I kind of wanted to, to feel more empathy for him but, earlier on in the story, or at least understand what, Um, kind of guilt was on his what kind of burdens were on his back because that was a very very unclear he was seen he was seen primarily through other characters eyes and I guess if you were curious about him um, by the time he lands in prison and you learn more about his view that would be satisfying I didn't think there was enough to make me curious about him before that point Mm -hmm. Um, that makes sense but I mean yeah I mean I love I love characters like that that are just uh, you know conflicted and guilty Mm -hmm. and doing the wrong things and sort of trying to justify it. There are a lot of layers here to explore. It's almost like there were so many characters and there the story moved at such a clip that um, that, you know you didn't really um, get to know what the hell was going on with any one given person. Um, Well and there's
1: also just so much like I feel like this book operates in the murky gray area on like a number of different levels. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Which is, so.
1: well, I mean, like, with the way the story unfolds, I think, like, so much of it, it is informed by people's memories of it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and, like, we sort of know the headlines before we actually get to know the rest of the story. Yes.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, And I think, too, like, the weird, like, there are so many allusions to, like, fading borders and different countries and like how you even occupy space and like seeing these ghosts and all of it like it just it's sort of like I don't know it's I mean I'm looking at the cover of it right now it's sort of like being on this foggy watery expanse heading towards a hotel made of glass you know what I mean like it just has that sort of like And it's, I mean, I don't think haunting is quite the right word for it, but it's just like this, it's just, it's like the air is dense and there's, there are so many like shifting figures in the distance, you know, it's almost like in Harry Potter when he looks behind the veil and he like hears these whispers and he can't figure out what it is. And it's just like, I just feel like the whole book kind of has that mood around it.
2: Yeah, it's a mood of it's a mood of dissatisfaction. It's like no one is connecting with each other. No one yeah. even knows what they want. I mean, I guess if you're t- if that is the goal, it is hard to draw very clear characters when no one in the when the, the mm-hmm. essence of what you're exploring is people characters who don't know what they want at all. I think the reason yeah. that um Vincent's mom stands out uh even though she's dead by the time the story starts is because she is very clear about what she wants. Mm -hmm. in every step of the way you know she's an artist she goes in she steals this man this man from his wife she's unapologetic about it she's unapologetic in how she raises her kid um there are very few characters in the book that are sort of have that those definite driven kind of outlines and everyone else is definitely just i mean even leon you know he loves one thing but he doesn't somehow he doesn't manage to pursue it in any kind of effectual way um Yeah, everyone is kind of in the fog, drifting along, trying to find something to make them happy, trying to connect with each other. And no one is really connected. No one really sees each other clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, And everyone kind of lands in this place of like of confusion. Like, why did I make those choices? How did Mm -hmm. I land here? Um, Is this even real? You know, that's something that gets said a lot towards the end. Um, Yeah. This doesn't feel real. This doesn't feel real, you know. But did anything feel real before that? Not really, you know. I mean, that's kind of part of partially the experience of it. Like, I don't know. I made I made all these. I don't know. Just it seemed like the obvious choice to not change anything, and so I didn't change anything. It was almost like people get caught into a stream, and yeah. they just sort of float yeah. along. Yep. Yeah. And it would take more work to get out of the stream than it would to just let themselves flow down down the river. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's sad I mean, you know I mean it's really it's yeah. sort of always sad like everyone's story is kind of inherently sad everyone is dissatisfied yeah
1: so as I mentioned I read this when I was on vacation I was like in a fucking treehouse in Bali reading this book and then on an airplane heading back it was like six weeks ago um you have been reading this over the last couple of days because you are an exquisite procrastinator. Um, (laughs) I'm just floating. It
2: was just going to take more work to get out of the stream. Greta. Well, well, that's (laughs) what I I wanted to do.
1: We've talked about like how, like the lack of connection between some of these characters and, you know, like so many of them seem to be facing like really intense isolation for a number of different reasons, which just has me wondering like what, how eerie was it to read this book while in social distancing?
2: Oh God, it's funny. It's it really you know it reminds me of the Sheltering Sky by Paul Bowles. Um, Paul Bowles started this literary um, magazine in Morocco. He was like an expat living in Morocco. Oh, but he wrote cool. this this crazy book about. The culture of Morocco and expats living there, and it's like sort of part Casablanca, part just bizarre um, like rarefied one percent strangeness um, but but it's sort of this story of doom and shadowy faces and not being you know it's probably r- roughly slightly racist, not being able to trust anyone around you, um, getting caught in these mazes in these towns and not knowing where you are getting lost really easily but but it was this disconcerting book where you can't really tell it's almost like you feel like it's written in a different language even though it's in english where you can't tell hmm. what someone's experience is and what's real and what isn't um and i read it on a train right after my dad died i was taking this um it was like a 12 hour train from durham to philadelphia Um, And I just and I towards the end of the book, I drank to, you know, Bud Lights or something from (laughs) from the, you know, uh, whatever they call the car with the food in it. I can't remember what that's called. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just was so disoriented by the time I got off the train. I was like, oh, my God, this book, The Sheltering Sky. And I would imagine being on vacation would feel that way as you were reading this book because it just is such this like strange amorphous tumble into um, despair kind of. Um, yeah, it was it was a strange one. And also just a stripping away of identity, you know, is sort of part mm-hmm. of you think you you're identifying yourself by certain things and then you just these things just fall off. I think a lot of people are having that experience with the pandemic and being trapped at home. Actually, it doesn't affect me as much because the dread affects me. But the the circumstances do not affect me be- as much because I live this way all the time.
1: You work from home.
2: normally. Yeah, I've worked from home for 20 some years now so yeah. and I also have three kids here and my husband two dogs so it feels like more of a city than I'm used to in <laughs> fact um, but I do but it was like the mood definitely fit in with the circumstances you know like who how do you it just made it kind of frustrated me a little bit though because I just felt like I want more connection you know like it, it, it's so just vital to have connection with other people at this moment in history right um, right, and I, I almost don't, I almost feel like everything I write right now is like, people reach out, tell people the truth for a change. Like, let's make real <laughs> connections right now. Like, you know, let's get passionate as we're, we can't even be around each other because goddamn, you know, like what else do we have?
1: Like literally nothing. <laughs> yeah.
2: Literally. We have boxes of cheez that might run out. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we have. I mean, talk about stock. Everyone talks about stockpiling toilet paper like I can wipe my ass with a leaf but I want to make sure these fucking Cheez-Its don't <laughs> run out <laughs> that's what gets me down give the me Cheez-Its,
1: Cheez-Its. Are, are your concern huh
2: oh my god I ate a box of Good and Plenty's the other day <laughs> in one sitting like a big like industrial size box meant for to share to be shared at the cinema remember <laughs> movies Greta remember oh god it is it's fascinating how much like, well, oh,
1: I was walking the dog yesterday and, I, and listened to, like, I don't know, I think it was, like, Missy Elliott or something talking about, like, being up in the club and whatever. And it was just, like... <laughs> I love it Like, I don't know. It's just so fascinating to, like, cons- to take in any kind of art right now, like, TV shows, anything, yeah. where it's, like, oh, look how cool. Like, look at them all hanging out in the bar touching each other. Like...
2: Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And I just... I feel like we should all just start planning... Like all we should do all for at least two hours a day is like plan the most elaborate orgies and parties. And oh, <laughs> <laughs> just like let's just map out every single you know beat of like the most <laughs> twisted face-to-face interactions. <laughs> I don't
1: know. Um okay, before I let you go, we were trying to think of, you know, as we did with the testaments, we had our warm milk rating system. And <laughs> like there are four-star hotels. Oh. So the question is, how many stars out of 4 would you give the glass hotel?
2: I would give the glass hotel 3 stars. Glass Hotel is like a Hilton. It's not a Four Seasons. <laughs> and it's the kind of Hilton that makes you really crave a Four Seasons. Not that I've ever stayed at the Four Seasons. <laughs> let me just be clear. Have I stayed at... No, I did stay at one Four Seasons once in Sydney. It was on sale.
1: But it apparently is like the
2: worst Four Seasons in the world. Based on the Weird. reviews. Um, huh. So yeah. The, when you're at Three the out Hilton, of four? If, if, I mean, if you're loaded, I guess... What you think about is the Four Seasons. You think, why am I at the Hilton and not the Four Seasons? Now, I'm more used to the Holiday Inn, so the Hilton is like, hey. So you're like,
1: oh. Everything works. There's room service.
2: Like my kids, when we go to a place that has room service, they're like, room service? We have (laughs) to get room service. Um, So yeah. But I think three stars. What do you think?
1: I think, yeah. I think three stars is good. I might even go three and a half, just because it has been you know, like having read it six months or six weeks ago, I've spent the last day like flipping through it. And um, so I finished reading it on the plane from Seattle to Chicago. And I realized I didn't have a pen with me. So I ended up asking the guy next to me if I could borrow his pen, and he had a red pen for some reason. And, and I had so much fun, like, I had folded so many pages of just like wonderful quotes that I thought were really interesting and insightful. And so I went through and underlined a bunch of stuff with this red ink. Oh. And, and over the last couple of days, it's been really fun to go back to those folded pages and just like see what I had underlined with this red ink. And yeah, like I'm, I'm really glad to have read it. And I, I think it's a really interesting one. I think it's a good one to talk about because there's it's just so weird and in so many ways there's like a a vagueness around it Mm -hmm. that that makes the discussion really helpful because it's sort of like okay wait like does this make sense to everybody can we piece this all together
2: um i kind of wish that i had a red had a red pen and had written in this book in red pen because it feels like I might like it more with red pen red (laughs) ink all over it it just sounds just right I might have to do that from now on
1: you know and like I wrote dread in really big letters on one page and like it was it was a really enjoyable experience on this plane ride on a
2: microscopic level I thought the writing was really beautiful like I I Mm -hmm. sort of halfway through I thought I'm not loving this book is the writing really bad and I sort of zoomed in I was like no the writing is really good it's a very Mm -hmm. well-written book um Mm -hmm. it just has flaws I think like feels it feels like it's not fully baked can I tell you the thing that actually
1: bugged me maybe the most about The Glass Hotel yes it was the remember the yellow Lamborghini
2: oh yeah oh my god
1: like, why did that matter? I kept waiting for that, for like someone to come out of it or like oh, yeah. for it to run someone over or, you know, like I just thought the way that it, the, the, when Olivia saw it and like she saw someone else seeing it, it just felt like a, a moment to
2: me. What was it?
1: That I don't think it was anything.
2: It never pays off.
1: I don't think it was anything. Yeah. And I like... For some reason, that more than any other aspect of the book, I was just like, well, God damn it. Like, why put a yellow Lamborghini in if you're yeah. not going to do anything with it?
2: That seems strange. Maybe we're supposed to know that someone was in that car watching or something. Um, yeah, yellow well, Lamborghini. Okay. So there's one, there's one true gripe. That's the half star that... that- <laughs> yeah, that's the half star is the yellow
1: Lamborghini. That's what did it for me.
2: I have, it's, I'm very simple, Heather. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there were the heat, the pool was not heated at the Hilton. And so I <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> lost half a star. Exactly. Dissatisfying, just, just slightly. <sighs> it is really beautiful at the end. It's really beautifully done. You know, there's something about, like, it's hard to have ghosts you know, appear and have it work. And the ghosts really did actually work.
1: That's the thing that I like, it was like, it redefined what a ghost story could be. Yeah. Which I thought was really impressive. Cause yeah, when I hear ghost story, I'm like, I'm good on that. You know, like Casper, whatever loved that movie when it came out. And I was in like sixth grade or whatever it was, but like this, I thought was really beautifully done.
2: It felt accurate. It was not even like ghosts. It was more like, the spirits of these dead people were sort of faintly interacting with each other in a way that you could fit into your mind pretty easily. You know, it wasn't like they were like arguing.
1: Um, well, thanks Heather. It was really fun talking with you. It was
2: really fun. I'm going to send
1: you some Cheez It's
2: okay. Yeah. Send me some Cheez It's and I'll pick the next book.
1: All right. I hope you enjoyed that book club discussion. Next up, we have a biography of George Washington. It's by Alexis Co. and it's called You Never Forget Your First. Get it? Get it? First president? I know. I know. You're probably like, really, Greta? Is this what the world needs? A biography of George Washington? But listen to this excerpt from the preface, and then maybe you'll understand why we chose this book. Okay, here we go. For nearly two and a half centuries, most of the stories Americans have told themselves about their country's past have been about men, by men, for men. Women, like people of color, have typically been relegated to supporting roles. And so when women biographers and historians get a chance to correct the record, they tend to shift the focus away from the leading man, lingering instead on the forgotten people and understudied issues around him which are actually integral to the understanding of him, too. Sounds pretty good, right? This book is funny. It's fun. It's bright. It's cool. I think you're going to like it a lot. Also, oh, by the way, I'm super excited to announce who our panelists are going to be for this. We get to talk about this book with radio producer genius Lulu Miller and historian and comedian and awesome human Sarah Vowell. They've both agreed to talk about George Washington with us, but I am, I have to say, a little nervous that just by, like, saying this into a microphone, I am jinxing the whole thing because who can really say what life will be like on Friday, April 24th? Just kidding. Everything's fine. It's totally cool. Just read the book. It's going to be great. Also, if you want to keep in touch with Nerdette, you got options. You can follow us on Instagram for book reviews. We're at Nerdette Podcast. You can join our Goodreads group by searching for Nerdette Book Club. And if you want a delightfully curated list of things to cook and read and watch and do, you should definitely sign up for our weekly newsletter. It comes out every Friday morning. You can get it at wbez.org slash nerdette AF. The show is produced by me, Greta Johnson, and Justin Bull is another producer who is amazing. Our executive producer is Brandon Banaszak. He's not too bad either. Go read a goddamn book.